The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. This is the PKD Black Box, episode 20. This week's episode is brought to you by Mercury and the Murd, Volume 1, Collateral Damages. Collecting the first six issues of the small press internet comic sensation, this book is the perfect jump on for all readers who must know how Mercury and the Murd became to be the best buddy cop comedy team since Starsky and Hutch. Read their adventures as they battle crime throughout the seedy streets of Dayton, Ohio, while taking on ninjas, apes, cosplay patrons, evil business tycoons, and so much more. 136 pages of black and white excitement for $9.09, available at heroescorner.com and dcbservice.com. Welcome back to the PKD Black Box. I'm your host, Sean Pryor, a.k.a. Stan Leroy. This week, a creator of Razor Kid and Wushu Academy, uh, Marcus Almond, stops by, and we discuss some of the things that inspire us to create comics or other forms of media. Uh, what begins as a talk about uh, video games such as Street Fighter and uh, Final Fight goes on to such tangents as uh, animated films and you name it, we probably talk about it. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, we go in, you know, Marcus goes real in depth with some things. It was a wonderful conversation and a wonderful time talking to him. And, you know, hopefully you enjoy it as well. Um, as I said before in the sponsorship, this episode is brought to you by Mercury and the Murd Volume 1, Collateral Damages. This book was a major success at the CGS Super Show a couple weeks ago, and we want to get this book in the hands of more people. Uh, so much and so so much so that you can purchase this book at DCBService.com and HeroesCorner.com. 136 pages of buddy cop action for nine bucks. So, and we also have some incentives going on right now. If you're the 75th person to order a copy, you receive a free soundtrack CD. If you're the 150th person to pre-order a copy of the book, you will receive an original page of Mercury and the Murder artwork autographed by artist Chad Sacconi and myself. And the 300th person to pre-order a copy of, of our trade paperback will receive a free iPod shuffle. And those specials um, go on, go on effect for dcbservice.com and heroescorner.com. So the 75th, 150th, and the 300th, 300th customer will win a goodie. Um, if you order them from either site, just so you know, but, um, the book is reasonably priced 136 pages of a buddy cop action for $9. You really can't beat that. And we poured our heart and soul into this one. So hope you enjoy that, but enough of me talking. Let's start with the show. How do you like the show? I like it a lot, especially when you you have those uh, kind of roundtable discussions. Like I think my favorite was the one about kung fu movies. I <laughs> just geeked out a couple of times <laughs> just listening to it. Like, oh my god, the Five Deadly Venoms, such an influence, man. I that's that films that. And the funny thing, it took me forever to actually see the whole thing. Because every time I'd see it, it'd either be in in mid action when I finally saw it on television, mm. or I'd fall asleep because I a marathon or something. Because yeah. they kind of has those slow parts in between the time that he finds out about them and the time he actually starts fighting them. And I always would wake up like right in the middle of the fight with the lizard. But eventually, I, number four, the lizard man, I love that guy. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's just as that that nice uh, compartmentalization of 
all the different characters, their identities, the animal associated with them, and the skills that they learned, you know, that relate to that animal was just fascinating, man. It, mm. it, and it was it's a perfect time for me, too, because I, I grew up with, like, Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat and <laughs> the King of Fighters, Fatal Fury, Art of Fighting, all that kind of stuff, you know. Oh. And, of course, Dragon Ball Z, when that started to really kick early version and then like 95 where it was censored to hell but we didn't care <laughs> yeah because we could always go to chinatown and get the real version in cantonese with bad subtitles that cussed where they didn't really cuss Goodness. oh man <laughs> just fun just fun fun stuff and really that was that was kind of what started my my path to writing was my ambition my original ambition as a kid was to write and make my own video games uh, particularly when Mortal Kombat 1 and 2 came out because those were the first fighting games that I'd ever played that had a coherent plot, you know, or a plot at least that progressed from game to game. Mm -hmm. Whereas Street Fighter at the time was, you know, Street Fighter 1, which had no storyline, and then there was Street Fighter 2, but every sequel to that was just a rehash of the, the old game with updates, which it, it actually would make more sense nowadays to do. I mean, basically, all those would have been downloadable content with the, the way games work now. But um, at the time, it was kind of like, I love these characters. They're very iconic. And I am I, actually working on a, in addition to Razor Kid, I'm working on a, a two animation uh, proposals, actually. One of which is for Razor Kid itself as an animated series. The other is for a project that I call Wushu Academy. Mm -hmm. The very basic premise to that is... What if Hogwarts taught martial arts, you know, and I've got it kind of laid out where every belt level kind of represents a different level of martial arts expertise, almost as defined by different video games. Like when you're like a white belt rank one, that's like Virtua Fighter, you know, where it's like realistic martial arts. All the characters have very distinctive styles. Uh, I think the the best example of a uh, a television show, you know, of course, for a uh, in theory an animated cartoon. I'm going to try to pitch it to Cartoon Network at the very least, if not more people than that. You know, depending on how the Cartoon Network one goes. I don't know if you've ever seen Avatar: The Last Airbender. Oh yeah, I've seen that. Yes. Yeah, like they have. They actually had you know a couple of martial artists there who would kind of pantomime moves so that the animation studio in Korea would understand how to go and animate it. And all the characters had distinctive martial arts styles, which I thought was just phenomenal. What I really like is having that, that bit of grounding. And, you know, as they go on, they get to, like, Tekken level, where it's a little bit more supernatural, you know, occasional projectiles, but mostly, like, you know, unrealistically powerful hits, things like that. You know, all the way up to Street Fighter 2, Street Fighter 4, King of Fighters, up to like Guilty Gear or Marvel vs. Capcom style stuff when they get to be masters. That, that's just the kind of thing that fascinated me just because it showed me that, mind you, this is before I'd ever played a Final Fantasy game. I mean, Final Fantasy, of course, had existed for years at this point, but before Mortal Kombat 2, I'd never played a game that actually had a narrative that ran between them or that had a narrative to speak of at all. So long, long, crazy way to get me writing was, was the idea that you could have an interactive story that the person experiencing it would have some sort of influence on it, or at the very least would want to and feel like that same drive that I used to feel, you know, when you watch like a Kung Fu movie, like 
five deadly venoms. And, the, and the, that, that's really what got me started. And eventually I moved over to prose because I thought, you know, well, me, I've always been kind of, despite, I guess, the way I, I turned out, I, I always used to be like the kind of kid who always want to do things the quote unquote right way, like the most mainstream, frequently traveled kind of way. So I thought, if you're going to be a writer, you got to be a novelist. And to be a novelist, you have to do short stories. You know, just nothing but prose was just the way my mind worked i didn't i've I read and enjoyed comics and manga the whole time yeah. didn't really occur to me to write for them until late high school and college and especially once i got started to leave college and i thought about it and i was like you know a lot of these stories won't really work as effectively in prose form because yes i can describe these things very well but it, it, you won't have the awe factor. You you won't have especially the the brevity, and you won't be able to surprise the reader as much with the these visuals. Like like one the, the one scene that really solidified my idea that I should start moving into comics was just a short story that I had where a kid you know is trying to shop, or in order to get away, he just runs up the side of the building. And stands on the roof, right. and nobody knows kind of where he went. He's kind of you know, lays down on the roof, lies down on the roof, and waits for everybody to leave. And that was just kind of it, the the long and the short of it. And the whole idea was to kind of, you know, shock the reader with this image of this kid running up a wall out of nowhere, you know, with virtually no warning. And I found that, that was very hard to do in prose and get the same visceral response that I wanted because yes, in my mind it works because the one who originated this idea mm -hmm. and it was very easy for me to see that, but I could, I, I knew that from someone who wasn't expecting it, it wasn't going to play the same way in their head. So I realized that, you know, comics is probably a little bit better of a place to go when it comes to doing what essentially amounts to visuals as one of my, you know, uh, how do I put it? One of my um, focuses is with brevity. I, I'm really inf highly influenced in terms of my writing style uh, with by Ernest Hemingway, where don't call it a large obsidian rectangular fortress when you can call it a big black box. You know, because you you get the impression of a big black box, and you you actually will get a few more. Um, a little bit more of a connotations with it. Like you might get conditions like being kind of cold, perhaps, you know, there's, there's, there's different things you can do with brevity that you can't really do so much with long drawn out prose and things like that. And images, the, the horse, of course, is a whole uh, saying that an image is worth a thousand words. You know, it, it's very, very much true. So if I on an image, that says everything that I want. Like I want them to, to see a big black steel box that's cold and, you know, maybe has skulls all over it. Well, I don't have to slowly construct that image in the person's mind. I can give it to him immediately if I do it something in comic form as opposed to prose. You, and, oh, sorry, not to cut you off, I, I apologize. Go ahead, go ahead. Um, you are currently teaching a class right now on this podcast, and I get <laughs> and I wanted to give you props on that.
you to you talking about how you know writing prose and trying to elaborate how certain things didn't translate as well as they could in a comic format or in an animated format things of that nature see i came from a little bit of a different school mm. for for me because I, I went to i went to school and i i picked up a bachelor's degree in english with a focus on, on creative writing and for me writing cool. you know writing short stories and things like that were cool and i liked it but at the same time i didn't for me it didn't evoke enough and i didn't know maybe it's because you know i I didn't have that that writing form in my head down yet. You know, I didn't know what my style was. I just I was just writing stories and if I liked it it worked and if it didn't I moved on. And you know, and this was during the period of time where I was getting back into comic books again, trying to get a feel what I enjoyed reading. You know, getting hanging out with my friends, going to a lot of movies and th- and I realized that for me what worked best for me is I wanted to be a screenwriter. I said, yeah. "You know what? I want to be a screenwriter. I want to do cartoons, I want to do comic books, I want to do movies." I just want to take over the world. So just let me do this and I feel that I'll be able to use my writing skills better in a screenwriting format or in a comic writing format than I could in a short story format. Now don't get me wrong. There were things I got from writing short stories that really helped me as far or not just short stories but prose in general that helped me learn how to build characters. Because I learned in a heartbeat yes. I learned in a heartbeat a lot of my weaknesses when it came to character definition and character uh, cr- character creation evolving a character yeah because you know, because you know you you know like I know there are plenty of comic books out there where and there's there's a purpose for a two-dimensional character okay there's a purpose mm-hmm. for it but but still if you don't have enough three-dimensional characters in with those two-dimensional characters you really don't have much of a story because you pretty much know where everything's going Exactly. It becomes predictable. And that actually reminds me of a great story. And it was the thing that really kickstarted me um, to like really start to improve my writing and just focus on it like mad was I was it was my freshman year of college. I was 19 and I had this professor who spoke. He didn't look anything like the guy, but he spoke exactly like Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World. If you're familiar with that <laughs> yes, show. Yes, I am, yes. Yeah. Oh, my. I mean, it was a perfect copy. That's the way he always spoke. And I, I can't imitate it, so I'm not going to try and mess <laughs> it up. But um, it was great because I wrote this story. And what he, what, what the assignment had been, on image and expand it into a story. And so the image that I had was the, uh, um, the glint of moonlight coming off of a broken piece of glass in a pool of blood. I had written maybe another sentence or two, I think a paragraph at most, past that initial image. When I got the, um, now, I, of course, this went into an entire story. It's about a page and a half long to two pages. I don't remember exactly how long. But when I got it back, right after that first paragraph had, was a note from the teacher. It said, at this point, I predicted everything that happened in the rest of your story. Try harder. Oh. And I was like, at first I was like, oh, oh, just like on the ground twisting. But I was like, you know what? You can't argue with that because it's the truth. You know, it's like, <laughs> what am I going to do? Say, no, you didn't. Of course. Yes, you did. <laughs> he did. And that's a we- that was my fault. You know, that that shouldn't be able to happen if you're going to write a story that people are going to be engaged with. And so what that did was. Especially because like it was great that I actually respected this guy. It would be harder if it was someone I couldn't stand, but mm-hmm. I loved his voice. 
because Boy Meets World was, of course, a show that I liked as a kid. Right, and, who, and, and who didn't love Topanga? Oh, God, yeah. Topanga was cool, you yeah. know. And, actually, one person that I missed was Minkus. I was so mad that they just stopped putting Minkus in after a certain point. Yeah. <laughs> just this, this annoying little nerd guy. I, I always loved the, the annoying nerd <laughs> characters and in, in anything, because that was my role in school for the most part. Mm-hmm. But... um. No, all that aside, <laughs> it was it was just a really good wake up call. Really respecting the guy because it was thanks to him that I just learned to, you know, do everything layer upon layer. You know, make sure that this is not something that you've seen before. Like if I can tell somebody, and and it's good for to an extent to be able to tell people this is like X meets Y. You know, like this is like, you know, Hogwarts that teaches kung fu. It's okay to do that as long as it's not as long as that's not where it ends. You know, that's just supposed that's not supposed to be the definition. <laughs> which is something that was a problem when I was younger writing is those kind of things would just be the definition. Like I had one that was like, oh, it's like if the X-Men were run by a corporation. Well, the problem is that's kind of where it ended. <laughs> <laughs> and and um it, it really didn't do much for anybody reading it because it's like, well, yeah, there's, there were some elements that were different, you know, but it wasn't different enough that I would say that, that I, I, sh- I would think of ever continuing it at least with those characters as the one and only protagonist. Mm-hmm. What actually ended up happening with that one is I had a background character named Razor LaRusso who was just this uh, one kid. He didn't have any powers, but he had, you know, cybernetic arms. And I just thought to myself, well, this character's a hell of a lot more interesting. Why don't I, you know, kind of think about putting this guy as a main character in a completely separate series? And I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, Bill Blankenship, who many people, many people will know from the recent Zuda competition and all the craziness they're in. Uh, this is when I, I first met him years and years ago, where he said, like, hey, well, you really should just do go with this uh, this idea for this Razor Kid character as as the protagonist because I find him a lot more interesting than the other characters. And I was like, well, I think you might have something there, and that's kind of what got me started on doing comics seriously, at least at least as far as my writing and developing a uh, property its characters and its world were, was concerned. I wasn't really sure about even starting it for real until I went to uh, Wizard World Chicago that year and I met uh, a guy named uh, Sanford Green. Oh, and I, I know you're oh, talking about. I met him at I met him at Heroes Con in uh, 2009. He, nice. He is a talented talented yes. man. That dude is awesome. Yes. Head. He definitely is and and that's that's a guy I really credit with um kind of giving me that extra push because i was also thinking about it i was thinking about maybe i can do this as a you know as a novel you know going back and forth and then i just talked sat there and talked to him for about 20 or 30 minutes and you know by the end of it i was just thought myself like you know what this is something i'm gonna do because he said and i'll never forget it he was like hey if you have an idea and you want to see it done you have to do it yep you know that's all there is to it is is that you have to just start it and get it done because if you wait and plan and preen and do all this, well, while you're making those plans, everybody else has gone ahead and done it. And eventually they're going to have done what you were going to do. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of funny as I was thinking about it. And there were, there were things that happened to me like that when I was a kid where <laughs> I, I would come up with 
these ideas that like, will be so great in a video game, will be so great in a story. And of course, being like 12, there's no way it's actually going to get anything done with that. But over time, by the, by the time I was in high school, I'd see exactly what I had thought of done somewhere, you know? And I was just kind of like, good Lord, man, this sucks. <laughs> but you know, just about everybody has, has that kind of thing that'll happen to them if, if they're creative uh, or, or, yeah, go ahead. I, mean, I remember as a kid watching, uh, the Voltron Lion Force and the Voltron Vehicle Force. I'm one of the, I'm one of the few people that love the Voltron Vehicle Force. Uh, yeah, I, I, I have to say I'm still a Lion Force guy, but continue. Oh, oh yeah. No, no, I mean, I, I, like, I like them both. But um, yeah. as a kid, I was like, man, it would be cool if they would just get both of them together to fight, like, the bad, you know, the good guy. I mean, the, fight the bad guys from, like, you know, the Vehicle Force series and the bad guys from the, uh, from the Lion Force series. That would be just, like, the greatest team up ever. And then they could do it like this, this, and this. And no more than like seven months later, this episode shows up, and I and I and I turned it on TV by accident because I didn't even know it was on. Turned it on by accident. Yeah. And like my whole world just like froze for like thirty seconds. Like, who tapped into my brain? How did this happen? And why didn't anybody tell me this was going on? So. Yep. Uh, but no, the, and it happens to a lot of us. I mean, it happens to everybody. Oh yeah. But, but yeah. The same thing happened to me with um the episode. I can't remember which power. But there's one where they fought the Ninja Turtles from the Ninja Turtles: The Next Mutation. Did, wait, but you, you, know, you kind of being cut, real you, young. You kind of cut, uh, cut off Oop. for a second. Um, did you say Power Oops. Rangers? You said. Yeah, the, it was this one episode of maybe it was a two-parter even, but it was basically the Power Rangers versus the Ninja Turtles: The Next Mutation version of them, where they have the uh, fifth turtle, Venus, the female one that Peter Laird won't acknowledge the existence of. <laughs> Not that I blame him, because as I understand it, he had nothing to do with its with her creation, and he's he's very particular with his babies, which I absolutely empathize with. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'll probably never speak to me because I brought it up, but <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I've kind of destroyed my uh, any possible connections to that world. But whatever, it's okay. Um, but but remember when I was a kid, it was like had to be ninety two, ninety three, whenever. Like a year or so after Power Rangers, uh, and it was clear that they were going to basically destroy the Turtles franchise. They they had like cornered the market mm-hmm. on kids martial arts related media for that time. Yes, yes. Saban Saban Entertainment wasn't no joke at that time. They literally oh. were, were running kids entertainment. Yeah, they they rocked everybody. I mean, like they're the first ones to to pick up on the idea that Dragon Ball Z might just might do well in the American market. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, they showed it at five a.m. and it was still successful, <laughs> and they they censored it to hell, and it was still successful because they they knew what properties to pick up. I remember when Saban Entertainment bought the later episodes of uh, Gatchaman, uh, you know, aka Battle of the Planets. Yes. Bought, and brought it brought it to the United States, called it Eagle Riders, and like I got up at seven o'clock in the morning just to watch these episodes. Oh yeah. Oh man, they they were geniuses of their time, man. Yeah. But um the, the, I remember thinking, man, the turn just get into a fight and I'd even written like a whole idea of how it could work because you know, Power Rangers were out in California somewhere. Turtles were in New York. There's no reason it's not in the same place. The only thing that didn't happen was that the Megazord did not fight Giant Krang, but everything else pretty much came out the way I wanted. But, man, I still would love to see that. Giant Krang versus the Megazord. Friggin' sweet. No, you might get it one day. You, hey, man. You, yeah. In, in, this, uh, I, in this world, the, you never know. 
Yeah, well, Nickelodeon owns the rights to uh, Ninja Turtles now, so there's a. Uh, you never know the kind of deals they could pull off. You know, I think uh, you know. You never know if if Nickelodeon and Disney would be willing to work together. <laughs> yeah, uh, it'd be hard. Yeah. But then again, uh, Disney and Warner Brothers worked together and made Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You know, there's a big rumor going around that uh, supposedly that might happen again. Really. Yeah. Well, because the thing is with like Roger, with who framed Roger Rabbit? I mean, if Spielberg wasn't involved, that probably wouldn't have jumped off in the first place. But you literally had, oh no, yeah. you had Universal, Warner Brothers, Disney, everybody worked together, which was unprecedented. It still um, is, still unprecedented. Because <laughs> you'll never, to me, you'll never see that again, ever. But no. there's a big rumor going around that it's going to happen again. That would be awesome. Hopefully, they they're they're not as mad at Don Bluth, and we can see some Fievel pop back in. Or at least the uh, the non bastardized versions of the Land Before Time characters. Man, aren't you know, they aren't they like on the Land Before Time fifty five? Yeah, something like that. I think one hundred and sixteen came out last year. I don't remember. <laughs> but but like the, the funny thing is, I loved that movie yeah. when I was I was that to be very I was like six because I remember thinking that was great for a kids movie to tackle racism, yep. and nobody virtually who I've ever spoken to has noticed that mm-hmm. you know about that movie and I knew it when I when I first saw it I mean it's I mean for me you know growing up and black kid and nobody gets along there it's it's something that you're going to notice from a very young age like I, I got into a fight in kindergarten because some kid was throwing around the n-word mm. so that's that's the kind of you know environment I'm kind of used to and that's usually how, well, well my mind will you know, kind of assume things are like unless I'm, you know, shown differently yeah. through, you know, interaction. That, that, that kind of thing is fine. But uh, I still remember, like, Sarah flipping out about how she's not supposed to play with long necks. And her dad was, you know, this cool-looking triceratops. But he was just a racist bastard. I mean, he, he was like Archie Bunker without all the fun. This horrible – I guess I can't call him a horrible human being. But he was a, a horrible – sentient dinosaur yeah it was just great to see how that how those characters had to band together and just kind of get over it you know well and for the longest time when they were making these land before time series whether it be direct-to-video or the or the theatrical features they always talked about indifference and how they should preach um tolerance yeah they you know how how, they wanted to preach tolerance through those and it wasn't heavy-handed though you know what i'm saying no no it 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 worked really well within the context because like you're you're given all the information you need to know it 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 isn't it isn't as though the triceratops ever enslaved the uh apatosaurs or anything like that you know it it wasn't an anvil on your head it was just you know this is the way these creatures think and you're you're given all of your information straight up so that you're not asked to immediately relate it as a metaphor in your head right. you you're you just understand it for what it is and then you know you can apply those same principles to your own life and i i, I do i really think that you you had a good point there um when you said about indifference because I'm definitely indifferent to the existence of anything beyond the first one. <laughs> those didn't, those don't happen. It's, it's nothing that's, Look, that even affects me. It's oh, just I don't. Like, I don't blame you. I don't. I don't blame you. You know, it's like there were a lot of movies out during the '80s and early '90s, especially animated features like Cats Don't Dance and um, oh, yeah. yeah. You see, you remember those bad ones too, huh? Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> those are hard to forget because yeah. you. Especially because if you 
have to um, watch one or two or ten of them for movie days and class yes. various days. You know, or, like, or just basically any time the teacher didn't feel like teaching you. You just ended up watching one, and good Lord, why was every single thing a musical? Hey, <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that out. It's like every single cartoon had to have at least one musical number, but there was only one company. There was one company that didn't do that. And um, and actually, I'm going to look up this company right now because I remember, so I was a child <laughs> of the 80s. I grew up in, in its hey, you know, in the heyday. Oh, and yeah. there was a period of time in the 80s where they just said, screw it. We're putting out, you know, these animated features in the movie theaters. And it wasn't Disney. It was everybody. So I got to see The Secret of Nim. I, oh, God, yes. You know, I got to see that. Now that, I'll be, I'll be real, that was not for kids. No. It was the only thing that made you think that is that the the way they spoke wasn't always super complicated. It was fairly simple language, but that's all. I mean, that, and and the funny thing is, I actually think that that is a much better film for kids than necessarily ones that are made for them because I, I always appreciated it as a child when a movie would not talk down to me, right, and when it would challenge me or when. It would give me something they didn't understand immediately, and I'd have to go and figure it out or watch it multiple times. Now, that's predicated on the, uh, the I guess I, I just say it's, it's contingent on the idea that it's because of a good quality of the piece that I have that reaction, right. not on the idea that it's just a confusing piece of garbage. <laughs> Those are two different things. You can get the same reaction out of a kid because – when you're very young, you don't really have much of a BS filter. No. You know, you you, you just kind of take what's given to you. I mean, I was 17 or no, 16, 15 going on 16 when The Phantom Menace came out. And I didn't really get the fact that not one character's actions actually, um, actually matched up to their motivations. Mm. Like almost at the entire piece, they will say one thing but do something that actually completely contradicts it. But they will say it completely with a straight face, and you don't realize it because you're just taking what's handed to you. There's a, for example, there's a group called the Trade Federation that I guess is being taxed, but if they're the ones who regulate trade, you they might benefit them maybe, or at least be indifferent. But let's say, for the sake of argument, the taxes are something that they don't like. Why then would they blockade trade from a planet? <laughs> dude you know i mean like you are you are effectively putting a stop to your own business yeah it, there there are so many plot holes with episode one i yeah. i just I, I had to stop myself <laughs> i mean but you're absolutely right no i'm serious you're absolutely right i literally had to stop myself and it's not like there are people like oh you're just trying to be a lucas uh you know you're sympathizing for lucas i'm like no i don't like the film the best part of the whole movie is when the credits you, <laughs> no, when Darth Maul show when Darth Maul shows up, and everybody looks at each other, and Padme is like, "Yeah, we're going this way," because they don't want to have anything yeah. to do with it. You know, that's the best part of the movie. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, that fight is great. You know, anytime I get to see Liam Neeson act like a badass, I'm cool. Yeah, and, um, and, and Ray Park, that's my dude. I, I'm down with it, but yeah, the rest of that yeah. movie as a whole is just a complete and utter mess. Just, just yeah. Oh, the, the the best thing to do, and what I I love is this was going around a lot of the common people that I know. It's actually a great tutorial on storytelling in general. Um, if you go to YouTube and do a search for, I believe it's called Red Letter Media, 
or the or if you if you type in Star Wars Episode One review, uh, I would actually probably more describe it as a dissection. Like takes apart everything that was wrong with it, mm-hmm. while comparing it to the original trilogy. It, it's actually very well done because while he does dismantle this movie and show basically why storytelling wise it doesn't work at all. But he doesn't completely do it by bashing Lucas. What he does is he says, Lucas, you did it right here. This is what you've done wrong here. And the whole thing is done from the persona, rather through the persona of a serial killer. (laughs) And it works so well. It's so difficult to um, to explain. (laughs) But but he's he he will like he takes it apart. The one thing he doesn't uh, talk about is Jar Jar Binks, which actually. Ended up not bothering me because just about everything that could be said about that character has been said. Yes. So there, you know, it, it actually worked. He didn't say much about it because then it, he kept it a little bit more clinical. So that, that, that's fine. I personally will always <laughs> have have a minor bit of a wariness uh, on things <laughs> that are designed or, or the things that George Lucas puts together. Just due to that character, or the e- actually, I should have done that with the Ewok movies. That should have been when I first figured out something was wrong. Because one of those Ewok movies, there's you know the random white dude walking around who knows more about the jungle than the Ewoks who live there. And it isn't because this guy's exceptionally great. Right. It's because the Ewoks are exceptionally stupid. Right. Yeah. <laughs> They're like. Yeah, I, I used to. I remember watching those movies, and I just wanted to. I just wanted to just see Wicked W. Wark take a poke and just take a spear and stab that dude and say, "We live here, fool." Yeah, but the thing is, they were so stupid, you almost couldn't. <laughs> like, well, he almost fell into the acid bog or whatever, the quicksand or whatever it was. Uh. <laughs> just like, oh, geez. and then there's also, um, oh, then there's also the Indiana Jones movies, uh, in particular, um, I believe it's Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Temple of Doom. The Temple of Doom kind of speaks for itself. And actually, when you think about it and you find out that the producers who produced the Temple of Doom are the same producers for the last Airbender movie, suddenly their casting decisions makes a hell of a lot more sense. Really? Wow. Well, 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 because they, they basically recast um, and, and almost entirely Asian and well, actually and clearly entirely Asian and Inuit cast mm-hmm. as all, all the good guys are now played by Caucasian actors. And the bad guy is played by an East Indian actor. Consequently, the entire genocidal fire nation is played by people, with the exception, oddly enough, of Avatar Roku, who was a past fire nation avatar, who was played by a white guy. So it's very clearly heroes are not, which was very strange. Well, I would say it's strange, but I'm used to this sort of thing. Um, But... The, the main thing that, that really bugged me, I guess, about the casting in particular were two, two things. One, the creators who had nothing really to do with it, um, with, with the, the live-action film, they, from what I understand, the original plan was actually to do it in 3D, kind of like a, a Pixar film, right. which would have been fine. The, the original 3D for that shows all of the characters uh, built as either Asian or Inuit according to their, their uh, characters and, and what cultures they're inspired from, like Aang, basically being a Shaolin monk, was uh, built as uh, w- w- with very Tibetan features. 
Uh, Katara and Sokka were both built with Inuit features. I don't remember that they if they actually had built a Zuko or not, but the entire Fire Nation in the show based on Imperial China with a little bit of Communist China thrown in there. I mean, I, I don't think it's much of a coincidence that the Red Army destroys the Shaolin Temple. Mm, okay. You know, the, 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 they're, they're the airbender temples, but, you know, they're clearly analogs for the Shaolin monks, and it's, it's not much of a stretch there. Yeah. The, the weird thing is that the kid they have who's playing Aang is not an actor, but a martial artist. Yeah, he's a kid from Texas, right? Yeah, so, so my, my thought is, really, you're telling me that you can't find an Asian martial artist? Seriously? <laughs> you know? It's like, okay, you, you can't... I, I wouldn't even accept the idea that you couldn't find a, an, an Asian actor in that age bracket, period. What? And I'm, I'm willing to give a lot of leeway for the Inuit characters. Okay, I'm willing to go, like, if you can find a Hispanic... Or a black kid, or you know, Native American, something. You you gotta give me something for the, the Inuit characters. You got you can't just. What interests me is that because like you know you talk about this and like you know a lot of um, there have been articles about quote unquote whitewashing in in films and I mean there have even been pieces where um, I remember one time Phil Lamar had talked about on the Sidebar podcast mm. how even sometimes black characters are voiced by white people. Yeah. Um. In, in certain situations. Like, you know, but nobody really says anything. And, you know, and the whole thing with Avatar, there hasn't been that big of a brouhaha. So, yeah, some people have said things, but, you know, the show goes on. And it's pretty much been swept under the rug. But from a comic book standpoint, and this has been talked about a lot too, Idris Elba, a.k.a. Stringer, Stringer Bell from uh, The Wire, is playing mm. Heimdall in, in the Thor yeah. movie. Nobody really knows how this is all working out and or how they're doing this but as soon as that was posted the camps went down one or two ways either people on one side is like well Kenneth Branagh is doing this film he's, he knows what he's doing he knows Idris Elba can act he wants him for Heimdall cool we're done and then there's the then there's the other side that's just like they can't accept it yeah and the thing is when it comes to Heimdall my thought is as an artist he would not be my first choice. I would probably go with a Norwegian of some type because mm -hmm. obviously this is a, a god from that region. <laughs> you know, it's like they're, 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 they're gods in all, in all his depictions. He's a white guy. You know, that's, right. that's what he is. Right. But I'm willing to accept it on the OJ principle. Now, now tell me, what is the OJ principle? The OJ principle is that two injustices mean we're cool. <laughs> okay. so the, all right because right. the thing is oj simpson should thank rodney king every day of his life that he is outside of you know uh, bars of a jail or the electric chair because had there not been the la riots as a result of the decision on the rodney king case had none of that happened oj simpson would never have gotten away with that but they knew that if they Locked OJ up, black people will riot through the 2000s. <laughs> There's no way. And you notice all that stuff went away. Nobody said nothing about, uh, you know, if the LA4, nobody talked about, uh, you know, Rodney King or anything after OJ got off. And, and then later on, Michael Jackson. Like they were close with Michael Jackson, but, you know, Michael Jackson, everyone knew he was weird enough. So it wasn't, it was kind of a racial thing, but not nearly as much as OJ because. O OJ had good timing. 
so that's that's my my thought. It's like you know what? If Aang is white, if Katara is white, if Sokka is white, then sure, and we'll just call it even. Okay. Now that that says nothing about you know Son Goku, but thankfully Dragon Ball Evolution sucked, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Have you the, seen uh, Street Fighter, The Legend of Chun-Li? I have to take that memory out of my mind. I have seen it. I hate myself for having done so. But but see, the thing is, is that you know you wanted to see it, even though you knew it wasn't mm-hmm. going to be any good. You wanted oh, to yeah. see it, though. Oh, yeah, because Chun-Li's my girl. Yeah. You know, and, and I wasn't really that bothered with her casting. Like, okay, at least you got a girl who was part Asian. You know, you, you, you gave it your best shot, you know, or, or I guess probably not your best shot. You gave it a shot, sort of. The weird thing about that movie, though, was their M. Bison, while being nothing like M. Bison, was the best Geese Howard I've ever seen. You, you're familiar with um, Geese Howard at all from, like, Fatal Fury and King of Fighters and all that? Okay, a little bit, a little bit, not much. Okay, not much. okay yeah. Everything that you know about... That version of M. Bison, with the exception of the weird sold my soul to a statue thing, except for that, like his his whole M.O. of basically being a mob boss in this localized area and kind of having this town under his grip, the slick back blonde hair, you know, the cool white kind of corporate guy who's a martial artist. That's all Geese Howard. Mm. And that he is one of the coolest ever get a chance to uh, watch, uh, they have a movie, they have a, a Fatal Fury animated movie. If you can find that, even if you have to find it on YouTube or something, it's, it's very, very old. It's from like 91, but if you can find it, it gives you a really good idea of that character. He's a beast, and they actually job of making Geese Howard, but for some reason they felt like calling him in Bison. <laughs> of, of course, the problem is it's two different companies, so they couldn't, you oh, know, use a, use a character directly, yes. unless they wanted to get SNK Playmore in on it, which would just be more money splattered all over the place, which they rightfully didn't want to do. No. But it, it was very strange because, with the exception of a few things, it was a very true to form Geese Howard uh, characterization. So I just took it as that when it came to him. Now the rest of the movie was garbage. I mean, I don't know what they do again. Yes, it's kind of great to see Liu Kang again. I, I miss him. He was awesome in Mortal Kombat One. We we will Only, not talk about Mortal Kombat Two. No, that didn't happen. Okay. Um, but he he worked. He was great in Mortal Kombat One. Um, and I saw him in some other movie too, and I forget which one it was. Beverly but, Hills Ninja. Yes, yes, Beverly Hills Ninja. Uh, so yeah, I was glad to see him getting work because you know that's my boy. Okay. He, uh, but you shouldn't play Gen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Gen is like at the youngest. He's like eighty. <laughs> Street Fighter 1, he's like 80, so I'm like, okay, I don't know what you guys are pulling there, especially because he doesn't die. That was strange. I, I figured he would die at some point because every mentor does. That's that's just something you do in bad kung fu movies. I don't know what they were doing with Vega at all. <laughs> like, I, I guess they sort of had a shout-out to the Street Fighter animated movie where Vega and Chun-Li fought, right. and that was the one fight he was in, but it, it didn't work. That's the, but you know, whatever. The, the, the really odd thing about it, all in all, you really appreciate the Van Damme movie. 
<laughs> when it's over with. You look, you look at it again and you're like, man, Raul Julia was a damn good M. Bison. Yes, he was. Yes. It was, was he he carried that movie for what it's worth. Yeah, Chun Li, you know. It's saying a lot for carrying that movie because that is a bad movie. Let's be real now. Oh, yeah. It's a terrible movie. Don't get me wrong. I have no, I mean, now when I was really little, I didn't care as long as there was somebody running around who was wearing the clothes and had the name. I didn't give a crap. But, you know, as, as a movie, it's terrible. But in comparison to The Legend of Chun Li, it was darn near flawless. At least the characters <laughs> sort of looked right, you know, not, not all of them. Yeah. Nobody had the right origin. It was clearly just somebody's G.I. Joe script that they couldn't get produced. So they said, well, we got this Street Fighter license. Can I insert them into my script? Sure. Why not? All righty. We're going to have more Street Fighter characters cosplaying. or It's basically the, the G.I. GI Joe crew a very badly written G.I. Joe crew cosplaying as, as a Street Fighter characters, which ironically is exactly what happened when they had to make the toys for that. Oh, if yeah. Because I had some of those, dude. I had some of those still it, in the package. Yeah. Yeah, those were good, man. I remember Guile had a tank. Yeah, yes, he did. And then, because like, they originally they had the G.I. They had the uh, Street Fighter figures that were under the G.I. Joe line. And yep. then what they did is they had the actual Street Fighter movie toys. And I mm. remember, because I used to work, this is when I worked for Toys R Us. I worked for Toys R Us um, during this period of time when the nice. Street Fighter movie came out. And so I had a lot of the figure, the actual Street Fighter movie figures. And they had figures where, um, they had figures that did not come, did not show up in the movie at all, like uh, Arctic Action uh, Guile. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, crazy, crazy stuff, but they were cool. You know, they were cool. The movie is, you're right, it's flat out awful. It's, boy. And it is terrible, but The Legend of Chun Li is so much worse. Uh. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I just feel bad for half the cast involved kylie minogue was in that street fighter yeah movie. she was cammy yeah and and the funny thing is every time i see kylie minogue's name the first thing that pops into my mind is that part where she does like the cammy's throw on some random soldier but she does it slow as hell <laughs> yeah. she kind of gets on his head and kind of falls backwards and then kind of throws him yeah. and i remember just thinking that looks so horribly unnatural but I was like, well, they gave it a shot. They they kind of had it in there, I guess. And so that's that that's my impression of Kylie Minogue till the end of time. <laughs> it's just her <laughs> playing Cammy. A very yeah. bad rendition of Cammy. Uh, yeah. Oh man. And the funny thing is, like for a while, I, I just couldn't couldn't reconcile as a kid was why they were wearing the wrong colors. It, it seemed like whoever had made the movie had just put their, you know, character select on different characters and hit a random button, <laughs> and then just picked whatever color popped up. Because like Chun Li was in red, I'm like, okay, that's if you hit medium punch, or that's weird, you know. And Guile was in blue, I'm like, okay, that's medium kick. What the heck? And Cammy was in blue, and T Hawk, I didn't even realize he was in there until I like watched it like the third time, and I was like, what? The, that I guess he's supposed to be T Hawk, and he had blue on, which made sense. But he was wearing an army costume, which is strange. Well, seeing that we're on this tangent, um. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, we need to get back to, to a topic that makes sense since we're over here and we, moving. We, we've, been all, we've been off tangent for probably like the last 20, last 20 minutes. But, but, I'm going to uh, be the Uncle Sal of your podcast, I'm uh, telling you. Uh, it's all right, man. It's all right. <laughs> I, hey, I'll take it. Um, did, you ever play, did you ever play the Street Fighter movie video game by acclaim? Yes. Yes. I have both versions. No, you don't. 
Yeah, I, I got them the arcade version, and I have the actual like re remixed version that was more like the old games on my PlayStation One. That one was freaking hilarious because I remember being so mad because they had a story mode on there, and it was actually really. Really well made for such an old game and such a terrible license <laughs> and typically a terrible game. Yes. It, I mean, as terrible as a really good and probably the only version of Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo that I had. I mean, that's why I got it. It was the only way to play until like 97 or something when they came out with the uh, Capcom Street Fighter collection on PlayStation. But um, the reason why I liked that was because you actually had a, a divergent storyline. It was like, all right, you have, I think it's like three hours or something of in-game time like to go and take down M. Bison. And there's all these different things you can decide. Like, you can decide, are you going to go and interrogate uh, Ken for information, or are you going to go see what Chun-Li knows? And then you pick one or the other, and then go and you fight that person. They tell you information. They always come up with some BS reason for you to fight them because mm-hmm. half of the characters were on your side. And there's no reason to be battling each other. What was what was kind of neat though is you had this time limit, and instead of having a set number of lives, you would just lose time if you died, and you'd have to and you had to just keep on starting. And the only problem I really had with it is the fact that you had to be Guile, and I had no practice with Guile. <laughs> <laughs> and it's especially that version where all of his, you know, hit boxes are in the wrong place because it's Jean-Claude Van Damme pantomiming Guile's moves. So right. It, it, it didn't work out very well, but I eventually figured out that Guile's roundhouse kicks have perfect priority due to a, either a programming glitch or just a, a decision on the part of the game developers. Eventually, I managed to beat it. And the coolest thing in the world happens when you beat that story mode. There's this guy whose name I've forgotten. I feel horrible. I remember his first name is Rio, but he has this music video that plays at the end. And the music video is like every, as the entire cast, except for Raul, Raul Julia from the movie, just kind of like dancing and having like a dinner party What in this random place. And it's just the coolest, most unexpected thing to suddenly have a full motion video music video as your reward for having played through this badly programmed port of a Street Fighter game. That is in freaking sane. Yeah, and it was just the cool and that's one of those things that really made me want to tell stories. I mean, that's my my, my whole impetus really is that <laughs> what one, one of my favorite things in the world to do is to tell a good story. And how I do that isn't all that important to me as long as it's the best way to tell the story that I'm trying to tell. So, you know, there are some stories that I have that pretty much have to be a video game. There's no way you could do it well as a comic or a TV show because me, I'd love variation. I love interactivity. Um, I guess a very close cousin to it would be like a, a, uh, I they're called visual novels where you're able to, is basically a brand of Japanese game that where you basically just, are playing an extremely simple game where you just come up with and uh, choose different answers that your character may give or, or make little decisions for the character and you just read the story otherwise. You know, there's no gameplay really involved. But I, I always like that kind of stuff. Like, Choose Your Own Adventure books was a big influence on oh, me. Oh, yeah. I had, a, I had a set of G.I. Joe Choose Your Adventure books. Oh, my kid. God. I used to love those, man. Oh. That's awesome. Yeah, because like that that was my first exposure to Batman of other of all things. Really? 
yeah, it was my choose, choose one adventures because I I would watch the the '60s show, but it wasn't a huge thing. I mean, it was big enough when I was really little that I you know had my mom make a little bat cape for me so I could pretend to do the silhouette and all that. But th- it wasn't a huge thing because Ninja Turtles were around. But then they I had these um, Batman choose one adventure books and. This one was just awesome because depending on what you did, different people were behind these this crime. Like so, so you could play a Joker game, a Riddler game, or a Penguin game depending on on what you did and, and what you decided to do. And you had to be smart. Like you had to actually deduce stuff yourself, or you choose the wrong thing. The one thing I, I remember was there was a um, a phone booth you're in. You're calling and. Is basically, I believe you're talking to the Riddler, or you're trying to, and the Riddler gives you this wrong, the thing fills up with gas and Batman dies, and you have to be able to figure this riddle out yourself, or just, you know, if, if you're going to be a dick about it, you could just go to both and see which one was right, but I would actually try to play them properly, and I remember the first time I got Batman killed, I felt so bad. <laughs> I was like, oh god, Batman's not this stupid. Well, I, that was my fault. It was a really fun experience, and that's that's always kind of been my idea of Batman, where it's sort of this in-between. He's far closer to uh, the, the 89 Batman. I, I'm not sure if it was published before that film came out, but he didn't kill like he did in that movie, but he was a far darker character. You know, the, the, the characters he was dealing with were not happy go lucky. Robin wasn't there, but the, the art was all would say late seventies Batman art with the really tall ears. Are you talking about, I guess uh, that possibly be a Neil Adams style. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say like Neil Adams style, uh, Batman. Okay. And, and so that, so I, I kind of got this really weird thing where the eighties Batman's personality and mannerisms was imprinted on me with his 70s design. And I've read a couple of the 70s comics, and they're pretty close in tone. You know, it, it isn't really um, that much of a stretch. No. It, it, it's just a whole pre- and post-crisis thing that alters, you know, to what extent he's serious or to what extent he's uh, he'll have a crazy adventure here and there. No, no, I see, and that's cool. But a ta- uh, getting back to the to the tangent, no, not tangent, but getting back to the thing before we went on that tangent, before we got on that other tangent, before we got to the other tangent. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, well, although I know I was talking about uh, movies in the uh, animated movies in the eighties and how things just like oh, yes, yes. really blew up. What really wanted me to inspired me to write was when there's this company called Atlantic. And I don't know if this is the same Atlantic that's owned by Warner Brothers as far as the record label goes. Yeah. They had, they started just putting out animated movies like from 83 to like 86, 87. I mean, they just said, if we got it, we're putting it out. If we got the money, it's happening. And it didn't matter whether it was good or bad. Let's be real. I mean, because this was, yeah. this is the company that, that put out Teen Wolf. Okay. Okay. Back in, you know, and that was their biggest hit. And that was in 85. But before that, they put out the Smurfs movie, the Smurfs and the Magic Flute, and everybody oh. and everybody freaked out because because they're like, well, how come these Smurfs don't have the TV Smurf voices? Because people didn't understand, didn't make any sense, you know, because this wasn't a Hanna Barbera film. This was the actual, you know, original original version of the film. And so I guess if, if memory serves me right, it was actually a foreign film. Somebody bought it, brought, Atlantic bought it, brought it to the states and redubbed it. So people yeah. fr- people freaked out when I know kids freaked out when they're like, well, that doesn't sound like Papa Smurf, but I didn't give a damn. 
you know, because no, I, I, I never noticed that kind of thing as yeah, a kid. You know, <laughs> I didn't care. I got to see, you know, Papa Smurf and the Smurfs on this big old movie screen. When going to the movies was an event. Oh, God, yeah. You know, that got me real hyped up because I'm like, wow, there's other stuff than just Disney out there. And Atlantic said, well, screw it. We're just going to put everything out. And so mm-hmm. for like a period of three or four years, parents took me to literally see almost anything they put out, whether it be good or bad. He-Man and She-Ra and The Secret of the Sword, which was kind of like a spinoff movie for the She-Ra, uh, the She-Ra animated series. Um, or say, for instance, there was a movie called American Rabbit. There was a bunny rabbit who was a superhero. They released the GoBots movie, which came out. Yes. Which came out, I think... Um, a couple of years or a year after the Transformers animated movie, uh, GoBots, Battle of the Rock Lords, they took me to see that. You know, I, s- I still said the Transformers movie was a lot better. Granted, you, oh, give, yeah. you give me the GoBots franchise, I'd make that shit shine. But anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. But anyway, but you know, but all watching all those cartoons and watching all these, you know, these mo- you know, animated movies, I got to write my own thing. Mm-hmm. I ha- I want I, like, I got to do my own thing. And that was a, as a kid, and I granted that wasn't going to happen, but you keep the little notebooks, you keep the little pads, you go back and look at them, and I'm like, "Oh, this is some pretty stupid shit." And then, you know, Sorry. but then you put it to the side, but but still, it, it got it got my imagination going so much that that spun off my imagination into comics even more and the film even more and just trying to find that happy medium for me, and it was once again in college where I said, Screenwriting, going back to the whole thing, back to the beginning. Screenwriting, mm-hmm. writing, you know, writing screenplays, writing comics. I can do this. I want to be a part of this. And character development, character development is such a key for me. And it's something I feel internally, even though I feel that I'm a good writer. I'm, you know, nowhere near great, you know, because hey, we all got a long way to go. But oh yeah, character development is something that's key, and that's the one thing I notice now when looking at these things that some of the things that inspired me back in the day, because a lot of these animated features weren't the best. But yeah. I can I can watch The Secret of Nim and see character development. You know, like you said with uh, Land Before Time, you can see mm-hmm. character development. Well, that that, that was whole, that was Don Bluth's whole thing. I mean, he his whole thesis was, you know, if you make a you can make a good movie, and kids will understand or will appreciate it at least. You know, like, like you don't have to make it really bad you know or, or just dumbed down because the weird thing is disney wasn't really dumbing themselves down during this period mm-hmm. but I, I i don't know if that's really a function of the period so much or if it was a action to you know the previous successes and failures i'm i'm really not under i really don't honestly understand because i haven't done nearly enough research because i mean that's kind of specific you know 80s trends and uh, animated cartoon feature, feature films. But one of the things that I remember them coming out with, and I think it might have been the last thing that Don Bluth worked on for them was, um, oh no, now it's, now the name of it is failing me because it's based on the book of three. But I forgot the Black Cauldron or something like that. Now the Black Cauldron was was Disney for sure. Um, oh yeah, because, yeah. I, I can't remember if if uh, if, if uh, Don Bluth was working okay, with them oh, okay, still gotcha, at that gotcha, point. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, and I know they. Uh, it was a Disney film because it was oddly enough really violent in the theaters, and I wish I had seen it. I saw it in because, the theater. Nice. Yeah, because they had like melting from <laughs> from stuff, and like from from what I understand, uh, Disney had actually marketed it more towards young teenagers. Yes. And and that was what they were trying to to go towards in that era. Which I think is such an interesting thing, you know. But it I remember it uh just didn't go so well for them. 
Yeah, I, I remember that DVDs finally came around, the technology came around, and Disney started doing Disney DVD and whatnot. For the longest time, you could get any Disney animated film but The Black Cauldron. Yeah. For the longest time, they did not put that out. And they, I think they finally did put it out, and then they, you know, how Disney does, you put it out for a while, they take it off the market, put it out, yeah. take it off the market. So I don't know if, it, if, it's, if it's still on the market right now, but... um. But no, I remember that movie. I was just like, yeah, this is definitely, even as a kid, I was like, yeah, this is definitely different, uh, you know, from any Disney thing I ever seen. Because, you know, a lot of the Disney films had that template. And this was definitely yeah. outside of that template. We have recorded for an hour now. And we have not talked about Razor Kid. That is true. And we should probably do that a little so, bit. So, because I got a, I got a couple minutes left for the people that don't know, and I've I've read the PDFs of Razor Kid, and I, first off, the, the, the I want to say first, Marcus, the book looks beautiful. Oh, um, thank you. You know, I, it's very well put together. Um, actually, what I'll do is I'll have you on the show another time to talk about more of the behind the scenes process on Razor okay. Kid. Um, because something I want to do on this show is there's people that are trying to think of, they're thinking about, you know, I want to do a comic, but what's the process behind it? You know what I mean? I, I mm. want, I want to get into more creators heads so they understand that whole process of you got to put in work to make this happen. It, it's not just, hey, yeah. hey, I got this idea for a comic. Okay, let's go. No, 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 no. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that, that's a really quick pipe dream is going to be disappearing yeah if that's your if that's your impression oh yeah and i you know and yeah like oh go ahead oh i was just gonna say um i i guess one of the go ahead and give people a summary of, of what razor kid is about because mm. i'm i'm sure just about nobody's heard of it except for you know you guys and people who are kind of around some of the podcasting circuits a yes. little bit yeah please so, let people know all right. Well, the whole thing is Razor Kid is about this kid. He's about 15, named Alex Tanaka. Uh, he's a kid genius, and at one point, he ends up actually working for a uh, engineering company. Now, pretty, pretty fair, normal thing. Problem is, there basically a global conspiracy that the government is involved with. He accidentally stumbles upon it. In retaliation for it, they take both of his arms. They have a, one of their enforcers literally, you know, rip them off, not copy them. Like amputation is what I'm talking about. Yes. Uh, so a couple of years go by, and he's actually decided to join the. Now, the give might doesn't know that the government's behind this conspiracy, so he's actually joined up as somewhat of a government-sponsored superhero. Mm. And in order to do that, he's actually built himself a pair of prosthetic arms. Uh, that's a very small way to put it. There's, there's a lot of, of things that I haven't really gotten into, but I will. Like, the, like for example, th this whole setting is actually in a world that is, for all in a utopia. It's, there's one world government. They basically control everything, and it's been in place for years, so nobody really questions it. This is something that you'll you'll learn very quickly is unusual about the world. Is one of the one of the things that they've decided as a uh, global culture is that the idea of patriotism 
is equivalent to nationalism and is treated like racism. So, for example, would wear the American flag on their shoulder will be viewed as somebody equivalent to in in uh, in America today someone who wears the Confederate flag, especially the Confederate war flag, you know, on their on their shoulder. They look at you kind of suspicious. It's like, "Well, what are you saying?" You know, n- not necessarily that they will immediately accuse you of being a nationalist, but well, why would you wear that? You know, and you kind of have that air of suspicion about you. Right. And one of the, one of the things about it is, of course, in order to maintain a utopia like that, you have to control an extraordinarily high number of people. Mm-hmm. So the the government runs this underground uh, group of enforcers called the Sons of Nowhere. And what ended up happening is Alex has stumbled upon one of their cells for the Sons of Nowhere. And that's a secret they can't get out because it, it's it's basically the 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 knife that that you know that cuts and creates the blood that greases the gears of this utopia. You know, so anybody who disagrees with the government but is actually in a position to do something about it. The Sons of Nowhere take care of them. Any uh, paranormals, as they're known in this world, who become too powerful or become insane for any reason, Sons of Nowhere take care of them. It's all done under the table. The whole idea is to give people the impression that they live in a global free society. And in order for that to work while still maintaining total control, they need to do some things that are incredibly violent. The issue here for Alex once he starts to realize what's going on is whether or not he can in good conscience continue to crusade against them because on the one hand they're terrible you know they 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 should in most people's mind not have this sort of power but the thing is they've eliminated war altogether there's no disease they've done a lot of good and what they do that's wrong in comparison to what had been wrong in the years prior is relatively small, but it's, it's kind of that, that, that eternal dilemma, you know, like, well, what is right and what is fair, you know, like what is proper. Like, for example, uh, I would, I would make it very, I would uh, describe it very similar to the Superman dilemma. Okay. You know, the, the, the one world government is effectively Superman where, they keep people safe. They do everything for people. But as a result of them doing this, people come to depend on it, which is by design. They are neutered effectively by its presence. The humanity is no longer its own master. You know, there's, there's this global bureaucracy that determines when when a certain level of technology is acceptable. Kind of the, the idea here, I guess, is a very long way to get around to this. <laughs> Alex Tanaka is a heroic Lex Luthor in, in that, you know, and, and this is, of course, taking away the idea, the fact that Lex Luthor is a, just a greedy jerk who has all of these ideas just as a way to um, justify all of his machinations. Right. But in, 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 in the most sincere sense like uh like alex tanaka is what lex luther claims to be where he really does have a a genuine love for humanity and for 
their right to, you know, govern themselves and determine their own destiny. But at the same time, he has to, you know, cope with the fact that these murderers fighting against are the one thing that has kept this planet more or less stable for the last 20 to 30 years. Because the, the, the alternative is chaos, especially were he to destroy that infrastructure now. And seeing for me, because I read the first two issues and I started to read some of the backups, um, because now the first two issues are available on IndiePlanet.com, correct? That's correct. I read the first two issues and... And you know now that you've bro- you've broken you've broken down the world a lot more for me because Utopia thing I kind of got when I was looking at it because you know this is a different this is a different area this isn't you know, your standard Earth Earth you know Earth setting or yeah. universe setting and stuff like that and I see now the whole Lex Luthor doing good thing I, I see that theme with with Razor Kid now and I like the way how you did storytelling a little different because you get you get introduced to Razor Kid right away yeah. Whereas, you know, say, for instance, if this is conventional storytelling, you're doing the origin first and then you're getting Razor Kid at the end of the book. Whereas in this book, it's vice versa. And it and to me, that sells better for, for your character. It sells better because it also makes the reader more, I don't want to say sympathetic, but it makes you feel more for makes you feel more more for the character than anything else you feel his pain it's not like well when is he becoming going to become a superhero when is he going to be the dude or be the man or young man but instead of that you see the pain the book finishes with pain but you know what the end result is when it's all said and done but you feel his pain you feel his pain so you appreciate the fact that he's trying to be heroic you know you, yeah. know, you know what i mean if if that makes any sense i apologize if it seems kind of out of context oh, oh no yeah it, it, it makes sense i'm I, i'm actually kind of having a hard time <laughs> expressing myself as, as clearly as i'd like to but no it's, hey, a, then, no, it's a break that's life no no brother you're doing fine trust me you go deep sometimes i think see that's the thing you you might think that you know you're not explaining yourself but brother you're going deep so you're doing just fine okay. you're doing seriously you're doing <laughs> okay. fine Another thing I like, because we've talked about martial arts films and martial arts combat, in this comic, there's a lot of martial arts styles. You have very fluid panels, which describe the action. So I, that sells the book very well as well. Oh, cool. Thanks. Yeah. The, the artists that I have working on it are actually some of the most talented people I've, I've met. Uh, one of the guys, actually, the, the guy who uh, does the pencil, or the first issue is a, a guy by the name of Jeffrey Cruz, who right now is the main artist for Udon's Street Fighter Two Turbo comic? Very nice. So, like, yeah, the the martial arts thing just comes fairly naturally to him. He's a nice guy, you know. Really, really, really professional though when it when it comes to um to like getting the work done on time and you know any revisions that need to be done. You know, I I haven't had any problems working with the guy. He's a very cool dude, and I'm. Very happy for his success. That, At the that, same time, now I can say, hey, look, I, I, I still want to make some stickers and stick them on the front, you know, from the artist of Street Fighter 2 Turbo. But I'm scared to death that if I use a Street Fighter 2 Turbo uh, logo, mm-hmm. that suddenly I'm going to get like an email from Capcom be like, we saw you at that convention with that sticker. <laughs> We're going to kill you. It's like, you, like, you know, page 24 of your it's going to happen to you if you don't turn this shit <laughs> No, no, dude. They're going to bring Ryu to, to, to one of your shows. And he's oh, just going to walk up to you like, oh, you get <laughs> Yeah, this is going to be it. <laughs> and it's over. K.O. <laughs> 
and, and then they cut to a scene. Somebody pulls up a car for no reason and starts beating up the car. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, no, it had to be like like in a uh, final fight where they just smash up a car and I come running out. Oh, my God. You know. <laughs> <laughs> like wait a second that would that would be how awesome. you know which one was mine no, no not not them destroying your car but if somebody did that in real life that would be oh awesome. that would be great the, <laughs> the sound effect did you ever see the youtube video where a, a guy is dressed up as ryu and they're doing that special stage for street fighter and he's literally using karate and stuff to take apart the car no, I haven't seen that. There's somewhere on YouTube. I saw it a year ago. I swear it exists. If it's not on YouTube, it may be on oh, video. I, it's it's out there. You got to find it. Yeah, no, I, I, I know where to find it. I just haven't actually watched it. There's a place called A Fighter's Generation, mm-hmm. and this guy has some good information. I mean, I, I, I go there very often while I'm I'm doing a lot of the, the preliminary writing for the series bible for Wushu Academy because just about every fighting game you can ever think of he's got the entire character lists with images and his opinion of them and any game you can think of he has the same for and under one of his extras I think it's funnies he does have that video up. I just haven't got a chance to actually click it. You must watch it. Oh yeah, I I definitely want to now. You have to watch That's, it. I mean, dude, you got yeah. After, there is after the interview, you gotta you gotta watch it seriously now. Yeah. Oh, I'm definitely going to. Have you ever seen Street Fighter: The Later Years on uh, on um the college? Find uh, that too. Co- Collegehumor.com or something like that. Yes. 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 I want my fucking royalties. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the, the, the racist Kyle was the funniest thing ever, just cussing all the time. And M. Yeah. Bison in a wheelchair. <laughs> like, yeah. What the heck? Yeah, dude. I it wa- was awesome. I watched that in 24, the college years or something like that. Oh, or, wow. Or, I don't know if it was 24, the college years, but it was 24, but they used like early, early 90s internet technology. So they were using like AOL and uh, it's stuff like, dude. And they had like 33.6 modems instead of high-speed internet. You nice. Know, Jack Bauer had to run the pay phones. Man. <laughs> it was hilarious. That is awesome. It, it was I'm going to have to find that. So, oh, my um, but, but no. Where okay. can people check out Razor Kid online? All right. Well, they can find them at www.razorkid.com. And that's R-A-Z-O-R-K-I-D, all one word. Uh, another place they can find is therazorkid.deviantart.com. And, uh, yeah, that's basically my DeviantArt account. It's uh, update the DeviantArt more often than I do the um, – more often than I do the actual website proper because I'm in the process of completely redesigning that website and just starting over from scratch. So – at the moment, I'm I'm you know kind of moving most of my stuff there. You can also become a fan of Razor Kid uh, by searching for us on Facebook, and I'm also on Twitter at M Nicholas Almond, and Almond is spelled A L M A N D. Um, I'm sure if you wanted to be a stalker, you could find me on Facebook as well. But you know that would actually be kind of interesting. I'll have to see who does, because uh, <laughs> then I'll know who listens to who listens to the podcast. Uh, you, you can also find my personal deviant art 
at mnicholasalmond.deviantart.com. And that has most of my uh, different, is, is going to hold most of my uh, other projects. Though, honestly, I'll probably update the Razor Kid DeviantArt with a lot of the same information as time goes on. Just because that's where most people know me. Mm-hmm. It's much easier. I don't know how much longer <laughs> I'm going to have one just with my name. But I, I don't know. They're, they're both great places. Check me out on both. And check me out on Twitter. Check me out on Facebook. Check out the website. Have a good time. <laughs> be happy. Dance, Eat right. and drink <laughs> and be merry. Tomorrow you may die. <laughs> anyway, anyway, that's a wonderful note for all children to learn. Tomorrow you may <laughs> die. So sure, you do great things. And if you don't do great things, bad things will happen as a result. At the very least, that's they. That's what I learned from most of like '90s television. It's like if you don't recycle, you're gonna fucking die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somebody's going to kill you. Yeah, and there was always that one episode of 90210 or Melrose Place or Baywatch where they brought in a black dude to tell the white kids, "So check yourself oh. before you wreck yourself." Oh God! And then the gangs, all the gang stuff, like. It was so bad around my neighborhood. And I, I went to a Catholic elementary school. You wouldn't think this would be the discussion. But there, they're just like, had all the boys go into the, the gym. And they're like, at some point, one of you, all of you will be asked to join a gang. So say no. <laughs> and with, I mean, they, they tried to make it sound like you could say no and not die. But it was clear that they had no way to actually say that because they had actual former gang members and not one of them used their real name. Hmm. <laughs> They're just like, yeah, uh, I used to be known as Swiffle, but now I go by Jack. Um, and I did things and was nearly killed in a drive-by shooting. Do not be like me. And it was like, okay, I won't be like you. I, I'll probably just die if I say no and they say, you know, join the gang or we'll shoot you okay. or we'll just jump you at random whenever the hell they feel like, <laughs> which is usually what happened. That was, that was kind of a funny thing is you would all, that was a really strange thing when it came to like the early nineties media is there was this really weird, uh, contrast between the media for uncertain issues and the media for adults on the same issues, right. like hood movies versus gang discussions and cartoons. It was just night and day where it's like hood movies, Get out. That's the whole thing. It's just that if you see this stuff go down in your neighborhood, get the hell out before you die. And on cartoons, it's like, oh, you'll be fine. Just say no. It won't be a problem. You know, just cross the gang at, and, and get in their way so that they have a reason to hate you. Mm. That's, that's the right thing to do. Tell the principal if they're doing bad things. Like, are you out of your mind? I saw, I saw Menace of Society. I know what the <laughs> hell happens if I tell my mother what the hell you did. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not crossing these people. If they tell me we are going to beat the living shit out of your best friend, I'll say, good luck. He knows karate. And that concludes this week's PKD Black Box. The PKD Black Box is available via iTunes, or you can go to pkdmedia.com to get our show, check out our form, and read comics like Mercury and the Murd, XO one on the Rock Solid Steel Bots, Agents of Colt, and Luke Foster's The Gang from the Store, six days a week for free. And if you're on iTunes or our forum board, drop us a line or email us at blackbox at pkdmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. Until then, dream big and hustle hard.